everybody. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be talking about Badfinger. I don't know how many of you guys know about Badfinger or know who they are, but I have to tell you guys, this one is going to be... It's going to be a lot. I'll just say that. I had no idea genuinely how really sad their story is. The completely and utterly the amount of sadness despair. They got fucked over immensely by a lot of people. It's really, really shocking, to be honest. I had no idea about any of this. You know, I only knew a couple of their songs, and I know that they were on the Beatles Apple core label when that first came out in the late 60s, so they're tied to the Beatles. If that's, I think that's how everybody knows of Badfinger, probably, is because of their ties to the Beatles, but... As a whole, it's a really, really sad story. And I will say, if you're sensitive to talks, just brief talks, it's not going to be like a big thing. Um, However, I do want to mention it. If you're sensitive to talks of suicide, then I would probably suggest you don't listen to this episode because that will be coming up later when we get into all the nitty gritty of just the absolute madness that went on behind the scenes Genuinely, I just find so unbelievable. So I just wanted to say that before I jumped right into their backstory and who Badfinger are. Because honestly, I think more people need to know of their music and of who they are because I, for one, think they're very underrated, which is why I'm doing this episode. I wasn't even going to do this episode. I wasn't even going to talk about them until I learned all of the things about their crazy story. So now I have to do it. So here we are. So Badfinger was formed in 1961 in Wales in a town called Swansea. And Swansea is, as far as I remember researching, is like a port town similar to Liverpool, middle of the road, working class kind of town in Wales. And the initial lineup for Badfinger was Pete Ham on guitar, Ron Griffiths on bass, David Jenkins on rhythm guitar, and Roy Anderson on drums. So they were playing around initially with what to call themselves. They weren't called Badfinger right away. Um, So they eventually settled on calling themselves the Ivies by 1964. And a year later in 65, they got Mike Gibbons on the drums. Their original drummer, Roy Anderson, left to pursue his other life ventures. You know, it was at this point where they were kind of just touring little places around Swansea and Wales, you know figuring themselves out, building themselves up a bit of a repertoire, and they opened for a lot of prominent bands, actually, such as the Spencer Davis Group, The Who, The Moody Blues, and The Yardbirds. And The Yardbirds is the first time that we will see Jimmy Page perform in kind of a bigger band because he was um, a session musician at the time, but this isn't a Jimmy Page episode. I just wanted to point that out because maybe some people don't know. So, you know, this is in the mid-60s. The Ivies are trying to get a name for themselves. And this time in 1966, they get on Bill Collins, who at the time was a session musician, to manage the group. And by December of that year, the Ivies moved into Bill's house at 7 Park Avenue on Golders Green in London. So now, They have moved from Wales over to England because I would imagine even back in the 60s that to get a name for yourself in Wales, I would think that would be kind of difficult. In England, I think you have a better chance 
of maybe getting more of a foothold with your music, that's at least how I would perceive it. So now they're in London and they're living in their manager's house with another band. They share the space with a band called the Mojos, who were also an up-and-coming Swansea group. And so they were performing together. Like, sometimes they would go to the same clubs and one would open for the other. So it was kind of a joint venture between the two bands just to kind of, again, like, you know, they were these two Swansea groups. They moved into London. They were kind of the new kids on the block. They were trying to get their foot in the door. It just kind of made sense. The house, obviously, as you can imagine, was very, very overcrowded. So the only place to find any kind of privacy for the Ivies was in a room equipped with a two-track recording machine. Their manager, Bill Collins, paid the band about five pounds a week as a retainer, which by all accounts, really wasn't a lot of money, even by today's standards. It barely was really anything. You couldn't really make a living out of that. So the Ivies were really trying to set themselves up to be a really, really great band. They were performing songs from Motown tracks, blues, soul, a lot of Black American music. They were just really a fan of that. And that was kind of a popular genre back in England in the 60s, even in the 50s, when again, like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, all of them were starting to then come over into England. That was just kind of the music that they were growing up on at that point. So that's the music that they were playing. You know, they were playing a lot of stuff. They even were playing Beatles songs, which at that point was garnering a lot of interest from record labels. So by this point, Bill and the Ivies were signed to a five-year contract, giving Bill a 20% share of the net receipts. And now the band was really starting to gain some traction, especially with their performing Beatles songs, right? The group occasionally performed concerts backing up singer David Garrick as well as his supporting act across the UK throughout the rest of the 60s. So this was actually turning into quite a favorable time for them. Even so, further, this is when they then start to meet the Beatles in 1968. So at this point in time, David Jenkins was to leave the group, and so he was replaced by guitarist Tom Evans, who was a native of Liverpool. So this is where Tom Evans comes into play, and I think some people really know of Tom Evans, I would think anyway. He was one of the tragedies of the group, as well as Pete Hamble. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, it's been said that because Tom Evans was a native of Liverpool and the rest of the group were from Wales, that there was a bit of a disparaging energy between them. Like he couldn't really understand them because they came from Wales and they couldn't understand him because he was from Liverpool. But they just, you know, they came together and they got along and they performed together and they grew to form a really strong bond with each other. So... Their manager, Bill, was friends with Mal Evans, and Mal Evans was the roadie and assistant for the Beatles. So at this time, it's 1968, and the Beatles are just starting to form Apple Corps. And Apple Corps, I'm sure you guys know or remember Apple Corps, it was um, a joint record label as well as they had like Apple boutiques, things like that, you know what I mean? But they were really more so focused on their Apple record label. You know, they were really wanting to put out new acts, not even just musicians, but like anybody with talent, like um, they would have writers on there, etc. But they were really trying to put forward new interesting artists, musicians on their label. 
And so one day, Bill and the Ivies, they invite Mal Evans to see them perform at the Marquee Club in London on January the 25th, 1968, to say, hey, see us play. What do you think of us? You know what I mean? So Mal went down and he saw them and he was like pushing their demo tapes to every single Beatle saying, listen, you have to listen to these guys. They are the next best thing. They are really good. Let's put them on the label. Mal was just pushing their demo tapes into all four Beatles' hands until they all were like, okay, let's sign them to Apple Records. Let's just do it. Let's go ahead and put them on there. Mal signed the Ivies to Apple officially on the 23rd of July in 1968, and they became the very first non-Beatle recording artist on the label. And so, of course, with that, they also signed a publishing contract as well with Apple Corps. So the first official single that the Ivies were to put out is called Maybe Tomorrow, and it was released worldwide on the 15th of November, 1968. It didn't really do that well, I'll be honest. It kind of failed in the UK chart, and it only went to number 67 on the US Billboard chart as well. Weirdly enough, everyone at Apple was kind of convinced that this single would skyrocket them into stardom, that this would be the single that made them popular. Even Paul McCartney himself assured the band that the song would be a hit. It wasn't really going that well initially. Like, they only put out one song and it doesn't chart very well, so it doesn't look that great for them. The manager for Apple Records in America, his name is Ken Mansfield, he ordered 400,000 copies of the single to be published, to be pushed for automatic airplay and reviews from newspapers, which he made sure to secure for the band. So it just, that was even considered an extremely bold move for the time was to push that many copies and to push for airplay and reviews from newspapers immediately on a debut single from a band that pretty much nobody has really heard of. It's crazy that that even happened, and so unfortunately, the single just was kind of putting a mark on their name in a really, really bad way. Ken Mansfield had to say this, We had a great group, we had a great record, we were just missing one thing, the ability to go out and pick up people and convince them to put their money on the counter. And yeah, that was the issue. They were having trouble trying to garner sales and garner fans to come on to Badfinger. At the time, they were still called the Ivies which I'll get into in a second. They eventually changed their name, but it just was like, uh, can you imagine the frustration they must have felt? Like they were with the Beatles. They were on Apple Records and their first single just flops. Uh. However, even though it was kind of a flop in a lot of areas, it was pretty doing well in Japan and a few other small countries in Europe. So the chart successes in those countries led to a follow-up single release in those markets specifically in July of 1969, and the single was called Dear Angie. So a follow-up to those two singles was then finally their debut LP that contained both of those singles, and the LP was titled Maybe Tomorrow, and it was released only in Italy, Germany, and Japan. So they were not putting it out in England, they were not putting it out in America, because again, those small countries initially were pretty successful with their singles. And so they thought that was the best marketing tactic to use. Alan Klein, who was the, how would you call him? The financier, the overseer, 
the head honcho of Apple Records. He's a he's a doozy, that man. I just am not an Alan Klein fan at all. Um, that was his strategy to limit the release of their debut album specifically to those countries. So I guess it worked, you know. However, this wasn't really going over well with some of the members of the Ivies, especially Ron Griffiths. He was complaining about the handling of their music via Apple on an interview that he did for a magazine called Disc and Music Echo. And he was explaining how they thought that they weren't doing enough to help them, that they were feeling neglected, that they kept writing songs for a new single and submitting them to Apple, but they kept sending them back saying that they weren't good enough. So upon that interview being published in a magazine, Paul McCartney ends up reading this interview, right? And can you imagine how embarrassed he must have felt because they're starting this new Apple recording label, this band that they brought on to say, yeah, you're going to be really famous. This song of yours is going to be a hit and it wasn't a hit. You know, I'm sure Paul McCartney, who is very much so a perfectionist and he is very much so a leader making sure things are perfect. I'm sure that that was very embarrassing for him to read, that they weren't pleased at all with what was happening with Apple and how their music was being released. And so Paul read this and he said, listen, I have a song that I'm working on for this movie called The Magic Christian, which Ringo starred in. And the song is called Come and Get It. As a peace offering, if you will, I can't think of a better phrase for it, but as a peace offering why don't you have this song that I wrote and you can have it and you can put it out as your single? So they were like, okay, that sounds great. You know, Paul already had like the demo set up for it. He already had things prepared for the song. He gave it to Badfinger, but he insisted that it sound like he wanted it to. You know what I'm saying? That they weren't going to take too many leads on it in terms of changing it up in their style, that it had to be a very Paul McCartney forward sounding tune. And it does. Absolutely. It has his flair all over it. You know, the band was excited. They were like, oh my God, we're finally going to get a song that might be really popular. Paul McCartney is giving us a tune. Like, oh my God, this might be our chance. Like, they were just so excited. It was recorded on August the 3rd, 1969, and they produced the track in under one hour. So on top of giving them the tune that he had written, Come and Get It for the Magic Christian movie, he had given them two other songs for the film soundtrack. So he offered to produce two of the Badfinger's original compositions to fulfill the three songs that he was going to put himself on the Magic Christian soundtrack. Does that make sense? Paul had three songs to put on the soundtrack. He gave the Ivies or Badfinger, I'm just going to use that interchangeably. He gave them the three songs. So now that he had Come and Get It, they had to put out two other songs. So the other two songs that the Ivies produced for The Magic Christian was called Rock of All Ages, which was background music for a party scene. And then the other song that they did was Carry On Till Tomorrow, which was the main title theme for the film. So awesome. They have three songs that's going to be in this movie starring Ringo Starr. They have Come and Get It, which is a Paul McCartney song that they're going to perform. That's going to be the lead single. What can possibly go wrong? One little thing. Before they officially release Come and Get It as the single, Apple told them, like, listen, the Ivies is just not it. You have to change your name because it just doesn't sound like a great name for a band anymore. You have to change your name to something different. And so... 
they played around with a few different suggestions. Some of them included the glass onion. They also had the idea of the pre and the cagneys until Neil Aspinall proposed Badfinger as a reference to Badfinger Boogie, which was an early working title of With a Little Help from My Friends. And I think that just works out perfectly. You know, Badfinger just makes a whole lot of sense. So Badfinger really in a whole incarnation really is and was molded by the Beatles really comes down to how the Beatles had influence in a good way over the band. So they're really starting to get integrated into everything that the Beatles are doing at this point in time in the late 60s. So awesome. They're now called Badfinger. The Magic Christian, the soundtrack, along with the film, is going to be released. And the debut single for the album, Come and Get It, is going to be put out. Awesome. Unfortunately, before the soundtrack and before the single was even released, Ron Griffiths ended up leaving the band because he wanted to commit more time to his wife and child at home. They were scrambling to come up with a replacement for Ron Griffiths, even though everything was already recorded and it was about to be released. Of course, for future music, they needed a bassist. They hired guitarist Joey Molland for the role. However, Joey was a better guitarist, so Joey became the new guitarist, leaving Tom Evans to shift his position in the band from rhythm guitarist to the bass player. So that's kind of how that worked out. It kind of worked out perfectly, actually. So now the lineup is set. Now things are done. Now everything is being released. Come and Get It was released in December 1969 in the UK and in January 1970 in the US. It sold more than a million copies worldwide and it reached top 10 throughout the world. It went number 7 in the US and number 4 in the UK. So because their debut album, Maybe Tomorrow, had only been released in those few European countries initially, the band's first three songs from the Magic Christian movie that they were given via Paul were combined with those songs on the Maybe Tomorrow album. So the Magic Christian was kind of like an amalgamation of their first debut album and then those three songs that Paul had given them for the Magic Christian, if that makes sense. And the album peaked at number 55 on the Billboard chart in the US. So it did pretty decent. It did pretty well. The single, however, did a lot better. So that's where they're now starting to make an impact. They really didn't leave a lot of time in between the Magic Christian album to their next album, No Dice. That was the follow-up album. They literally just kind of went right into it in the spring, March of 1970, and Mal Evans himself produced the album. Two songs were completed for the album. The first was No Matter What, which is wholly one of their best songs that they've ever done, like, of all time. That is a great tune. Weirdly enough, though, it was rejected by Apple as a potential single. I don't know why, Seriously, I don't know why. It's one of their best songs, but okay. So Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich took over as producer on the album. So Mal Evans was kind of put to the side because that was surprising to read. Mal Evans isn't a producer. He's mainly just like a roadie and and an assistant. So it was interesting that he personally was producing the album at first. 
However, Jeff Emmerich came in and he took over as producer for the album and the band completed No Dice in July of 1970. And it was released in the U.S. in late 1970, peaking at number 28 on the Billboard chart in America. The song, No Matter What, was originally produced by Mal Evans, but it was remixed by Jeff Emmerich when he came in. And so his remix of the song was the one that got put out as the single. And No Matter What peaked at number 8 in the U.S. and number 5 in the U.K. Seriously. This is one of their best songs ever of all time. It's one of my favorite songs. Another track that was produced by Jeff Emmerich was called Without You, and that's also one of their massive tunes. Ma I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it because I'm not going to embarrass myself, but you all know the song. You all do. It was covered by Harry Nilsson, and that's where the song really took, really took like a whole other incarnation when Harry Nilsson covered the song because he made it even more popular, and he covered the song in 1972. It became like an international hit. Seriously, it reached number one on the Billboard chart in the US and it spent five weeks at the top of the UK chart. So they were doing pretty well for themselves at this point in time. Now it's the early 70s. They could do no wrong. They were putting out amazing music. Like now they were finally settled as a band officially. Like they weren't having a lot of hiccups at this point. Like they were smooth sailing now. Now that they had like a, a couple of good singles and No Dice was doing really well. Like, it was turning out to be a pretty good time. However, that would surely dissipate in no time at all, unfortunately. It's just unfortunately how it goes. You know what I'm saying? How the Badfinger story goes. It's very unfortunate. So in April of 1970, while they were in the U.S. scouting for prospects for an American tour for No Dice, Bill Collins, their manager, was introduced to a New York businessman called Stan Polly. And Stan Polly worked with other, he managed other um, acts such as Al Cooper, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Lou Christie. So knowing this, you know, they thought, okay, we need like a U.S. manager to help us out because that made sense. Like if you were a U.K.-based band and you wanted to put your music out in America, that's what you would do. I think maybe the best case scenario is to have like a subsidiary record company. For example, like Parlophone. EMI, and then they had Capitol Records in America for the Beatles, kind of that whole thing. This was kind of like the next step for them was to get an American business person to manage all of their American assets and things of that nature. So Stan Pauly signed Badfinger to a business management contract in November of 1970. And with Badfinger, they established Badfinger Enterprises Incorporated with another man named Stan Poses. And Stan Poses was the vice president. So there's two stands here. I'm going to call the bad guy, Polly, and the good guy, Stan Poses. Okay, I hope that makes sense. So this contract was to be the beginning of the end. 1000%. Like they had met the devil on this day and they signed a deal with the devil. And I don't even mean that to be a dramatic thing at all. That's, that's what it is, unfortunately. The contract that they signed with Polly was that it bound the band to numerous contracts saying that any money that is earned via touring, recording, publishing, royalties, etc. was to be directed into a holding company controlled by Polly. And that was Badfinger Enterprises. That was the holding company that the money was to go for. So he was the one that was controlling the money. 
you know, it just kind of um was was a a really bad deal. And you know, Polly had initially a pretty decent reputation and he was admired, you know, by a couple of other people in the industry as being like a good guy, but this was before all of his shady business would come into the light. So he put out a really great appearance, but unfortunately, it was just downhill from this point. It was like the beginning of the end. Badfinger is now in business with Stan Polly, and they toured the U.S. for three months in late 1970, and they generally were well-received by American audiences. Although they were starting to get compared to the Beatles, and they were getting annoyed by that because, of course, they weren't the Beatles. And I could understand how that would be frustrating because you're linked to the Beatles. They even sounded similar to the Beatles, to be honest. Like, even one of the Beatles producers, Tony Visconti, he said that sometimes when Badfinger was recording, he would have to make sure that it wasn't John and Paul singing the vocals. Like, madness, you know what I mean? So, you know, Badfinger was trying to establish themselves as their own band, not like a Beatles 2.0 kind of thing. And that's what I think a lot of people were hoping that they were going to be, but that just wasn't the case. So, you know, they were frustrated that they were already getting links to the Beatles and that's not what they wanted. Even at the time of No Dice, when that came out in 1970, a review from Rolling Stone at the time actually raved about the comparisons to the Beatles saying, it's as if John, Paul, George, and Ringo had been reincarnated as Joey, Pete, Tom, and Mike of Badfinger. So unfortunately, these comparisons in the media between them and the Beatles would continue throughout their entire career. It was like a monkey on their back that they couldn't shake. Like, it's just, unfortunately, they had to kind of take that in stride and just deal with it. So something that's really interesting as well is that some of the members of Badfinger also joined in sessions for other Apple record artists at the time. Most notably, some of the members played the acoustic guitar and percussion on a lot of George Harrison's debut album, All Things Must Pass. They were included on the singles, Isn't It a Pity, My Sweet Lord, and What Is Life? And Pete Ham and Tom Evans also provided backing vocals for Ringo Starr's song, It Don't Come Easy. Not only that, but Tom Evans and Joey Mullen performed on John Lennon's album, Imagine. However, Joey said that the tracks that they worked on weren't used for the album. However, they did work with John. So it was cool that, like, they were getting integrated with the Beatles music in a big way, actually. Most famously, the kind of joint collaboration that, well, one of them, I should say, one of the joint collaborations that Badfinger did with the Beatles was the concert for Bangladesh that George did in 1971 in the summertime when, you know, a lot of big artists, I think Eric Clapton was there. I forget who exactly was on that concert with George, but it was to raise funds for Bangladesh. And Badfinger went on stage with them and they performed Here Comes the Sun during that concert with George. Um, it was great. You know what I mean? Like they were, again, at the top of their game. They really couldn't do any wrong here. Now we're getting into their follow-up album called Straight Up. And so this is where George actually plays a bigger role in Badfinger and their history. Because I'm sure everyone knows of the song Day After Day, the Badfinger tune. That is... Phew, that's a really beautiful song. Um, it sounds like a George Harrison song, doesn't it? That is a key factor because 
George wanted to repay Badfinger back for helping him out on the concert for Bangladesh and on his debut album. George asked them if he could play the slide guitar on the song Day After Day. And they said, yes, of course. And so I just, I love that song so much. Um, So that was George's kind of like thank you parting gift for them was to put his slide guitar uh, section on their song Day After Day. And it became, again, like one of their most highest charting selling singles of all time. So for their album Straight Up, they rented what was called Clearwell Castle in Gloucestershire, and they lived and recorded the album there, and they finished the album with Jeff Emmerich again as producer. However, the tapes were rejected by Apple because Apple felt that Badfinger needed a producer who could bring a more polished sound to the recordings. So therefore, George Harrison himself took over as producer in the spring of 71. This was major as well, like George Harrison helped to produce this album too. Not only that, but they brought on Leon Russell and their friend from Germany, Klaus Vormann. Klaus Vormann worked with George, John, Paul. He did the album cover for Revolver, etc., etc. Like, Klaus Vormann is a really big cog in the Beatles' wheelhouse, I guess you could say. Does that make sense? George Harrison now was coming in to produce straight up, right? And this is where, again, he asked if he could be on day after day to help them. And there you go. However, unfortunately, you know, while they were recording straight up, George was just kind of tied up after the concert with all of his other things that he was unable to resume producing straight up. So this is madness to me. Guess who they got after George Harrison left? They got Todd Rundgren to produce the album. This is like unreal classic rock history right here. Like Todd Rundgren, he is another major artist from the 70s. Absolutely mind-blowing to me. So he mixed the tapes that George Harrison had done and he re-recorded stuff that Jeff Emmerich was initially doing and he produced some newer, previously unheard recordings for the whole album. So this was like a whole amazing album right here that is just filled to the brim with really great material and great hands-on from all these amazing, creative, talented people that helped them produce the album. Just so good. So good. The album Straight Up was released in the U.S. in December of 1971. It spawned two successful singles. Again, Day After Day was one of them. And it landed at number four on the Billboard charts and it sold over a million copies worldwide. And the second song that they did was Baby Blue. That's another massive tune of theirs as well. It went to number 14 on the U.S. charts, so not bad. Not bad at all. Straight Up itself, the album, reached number 31 in the U.S. charts, so it was doing extremely well for itself. However, at this point in time, Apple Records was starting to crumble. It hadn't crumbled completely, but it was like starting to fall away And the Beatles were nearing the end of their time as a band. Like, time was running up for them. It was really now at this point that stuff was starting to fall apart for them. Not only did they have that bad business contract with Polly in America, they also weren't going to be on Apple Records for much longer and have ties to the Beatles much longer because Apple was going to crumble and the Beatles were going to break up. So... 
With all of this going on, this led to their single Baby Blue never being released in the UK as a single. Although they had the paperwork ready for its release, it just couldn't happen. So now, at the start of 1972, Badfinger were contracted for one more album with Apple Records. Despite the great success that Badfinger was having, Apple was again just facing bad times and its operations were being cut back by Alan Klein. It just, you know, it, it wasn't really a great situation. And so Stan Polly was seeing this going on and he took the opportunity to latch himself even further onto Badfinger and he told the band Alan Klein wanted to cut their royalty rate and make them pay for their own studio time meaning that they would have to give Stan Polly more money, <laughs> you know? And by this time, now things were starting to come to light of the financial mismanagement, if I should just say that nicely, um, that he was running. So his other clients were like, what's up with this Stan Polly guy? Like, what's going on with him, you know? There was also a series of allegations that also said that Stan Polly had worked for the mafia at one point in time. Does that surprise me? No. Of course not. It doesn't surprise me. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. So to work in accordance with Apple and give them one more album for that contract, they produced their fourth and final album for Apple called Ass. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, that was the title for the album. I wasn't expecting that either, to be fair. But there you go. And again, this is the uh, downfall of the band at this point in time, one million percent. So they had begun working on this album as early as 1972, and it would continue to be recorded and produced over 1973. Todd Rundgren was originally going to be brought back to produce the album, but he quit in a financial dispute during the first week of recording. So the band was left with nobody to produce the album, and so they thought they would produce it themselves, which, to be fair... I wonder if that's why it didn't really do that great to begin with. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. Badfinger produced the album and they sent it off to Apple, but Apple rejected their version of the album. And so they were like at a crossroads. They had no idea who to turn to, what to do. So they finally hired Chris Thomas to co-produce and complete the album. And that was accepted by Apple. In the meantime... Stan Polly was negotiating a deal between him, Badfinger, and Warner Brothers that forced the band to make a new album every six months over a three-year period. So doing the math, a new album every six months for three years, that would equate to six albums in the span of three years, which that's so impossible. That's literally, you'd have to be working overtime and the quality of those albums would not be great at all. It just wasn't looking good for them. So Stan Polly was trying to get them with Warner Brothers because now, of course, they were going to have to leave Apple. So he was looking for another record company to bring them on with. And this was the contract he brought to them. So, you know, it was at this point that Tom Evans was starting to become suspicious of Polly. Like, who is this guy trying to tell us that we need to put out this many albums and give him all of our money? But the band was like, come on, we have to sign this. I don't know why, to be honest, they signed it and agreed. I, I don't know why they felt that they were obligated to do it. They weren't. They could have said no. I, I don't know. To be honest, I really don't know. It's still kind of shrouded in mystery. However, they signed the contract. 
and they were going to be with Warner Brothers after the release of this Apple album. Their fourth album, Ass, was released in 1973, and the cover, really interesting, weird cover choice. However, Tom Evans was like, okay, here's my idea for the cover. Imagine, if you will, a donkey staring at a huge dangling carrot in the sky. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Oh my god. Hey, whatever. That's what it is. They're like, yeah, let's go for it. You know, but again, just it didn't really do that great. And it was stalled from its release because of the whole legal issue between them and Polly, because Polly wanted to use Joey Mullen's unsigned song publishing as a negotiating ploy to get them on this contract with Warner Brothers. And it was just like, this is a whole mess of a situation, okay? Finally, the album gets released and the accompanying lead single for the album called Apple of My Eye failed on all accounts on the charts, 100%. The album went to 122 and the single fell short of reaching the top 100. So just horrible. Awful, awful, awful. It was a flop of an album. Flop. So now that Apple Records was officially disbanded, it was gone. The Beatles were done. They had broken up. And Badfinger had fulfilled their contract with Apple. Now they were officially signed on to Warner Brothers with that horrible contract. The vice president of Badfinger Enterprises, who is Stan Posey, he's the good guy in this one. He repeatedly told the band, don't sign this contract. It is bad for you. And it only works for him. Don't sign this. However, they signed it anyway. You know, Polly dangled the whole carrot in front of their face with the money. And he told the band, hey, you're going to be millionaires. You can retire in like two years with your money. It's going to be great. It's going to be a lucrative deal. And it's like, no, the deal actually gave the band 12%. Of the retail that they were to make in like record stores, for example, any album of theirs that was sold in record stores, all of that, they got 12% of that money. And they also got 8.5% for the rest of the world. So if their albums were to be put out in the UK, Europe, Japan, wherever, they would get 8.5% of that money. And they were also promised a $225,000 advance for every album delivered. I think it seemed like a decent deal to them, but it was a horrible deal. After only six weeks after the last recording sessions for their album, Ass, Badfinger re-entered the studio to begin recording its material for Warner Brothers. So this was the album that was self-titled called Badfinger. The intended title was going to be For Love or Money. Interestingly enough, it was omitted. Like, hmm, I wonder why it was going to be omitted. For Love or Money. Hmm. But they titled it Badfinger. Interestingly enough, Ass and Badfinger, the album, were almost simultaneously released around the same time because that's how quickly this album, Badfinger, was recorded. The singles from this new album, Badfinger, titles were Love is Easy and I Miss You. They were unsuccessful. Just, they couldn't do it. They just can't keep, like, any of the momentum that they had gained in the early 70s. They just couldn't do it. However, somehow, they managed to retain some of the U.S. fan support as a result of them touring in America. So somehow, 
they were even more popular in America than they were in their home country of Wales or England. It's just, it's madness to me. You know what I'm saying? So here they are touring in America for this new album and they had to come out with more albums. So they went into the studio yet again to record their now seventh studio album titled Wish You Were Here. Not to be confused with the Pink Floyd song Wish You Were Here, That's just coincidentally the name of their seventh studio album. And they recorded this album at Caribou Ranch in Colorado and at George Martin's studio in London. So that was nice. You know, George Martin is still kind of um, helping Badfinger out there. That's actually really nice, you know? This album was actually pretty well received. However, Warner Brothers had become troubled with this Stan Polly guy because Stan Polly was being shady with the money that he was withholding from Badfinger and Warner Brothers. Polly was not saying to Warner Brothers where this money in this particular account that they were holding for Badfinger was. They were like, hey, Polly, where's this money? Where is this account for all this money? Where is this? You're not talking to us. You're not saying anything. Per the contract, right? Polly had to deposit $250,000 into a mutually accessible account which both Warner Brothers and Badfinger could access this account for the money. However, Polly didn't reveal the account's whereabouts, and he ignored Warner Brothers' demands to tell them where it was and what the status of the account was. So he wouldn't say how much was in the account. He wouldn't say where the account was. So unfortunately, this caused Warner Brothers to terminate its relationship with Badfinger on April 30th, 1974. Just, you know, unbelievable. So this album, they had completed, they were just sitting there, and it wasn't going to be released until later. Warner Brothers refused to accept the tapes for the album because, of course, they were now going to be in a legal battle with Warner Brothers and with Polly, right? Because this is ridiculous. This is absolutely fraud on all levels, angles. It's just like crazy that this even happened. It's madness. However, the album was released regardless of this fact, so it had to be put out anyway. So there was obviously crisis within the band in terms of band management, the money, the leadership of the band. It was just a growing pot of bubbling tensions and friction, arguments, anger, resentment, not only within the band members themselves and their respective wives, because they were all living together at least for, for a portion of time, in a house because they had no money to live like on their own separately with their wives and stuff, at least for a while here. It was just creating so much internal conflict. And Joey Mullen's wife, Kathy, actually complained first. She said, you guys have really successful singles and really successful albums and you worked with the Beatles And yet we still don't have like a fridge in our house. We still have no money. How is this possible? So she was bringing up legitimate concerns. And this just caused a whole riff between the members of the band. You know, Pete Ham, notably, he wanted to quit during, you know, a meeting in October of 1974 before they were going to go on a UK tour. He's like, I can't do this anymore we're in this horrible contract and we have no money to show for our work, I'm done. 
you know, he left for a short period of time. He found a cottage in Wales and he hoped to build a studio to, I would assume, do solo work. They were going to go on tour and Pete left and they were like, oh my God, we have to scramble to find a replacement guitarist. And so they brought on keyboardist and guitarist Bob Jackson. So during Pete Ham's three-week hiatus from the band, he was hanging out in Wales in his home country, doing his own thing. He wanted to just be done with this. Stan Polly had the nerve to try to interest record companies in putting up Pete as a solo act. Just like, what the fuck? <laughs> just trying to make more money. The band was just trying to pressure Pete to come back. Like, please, please come back. We're under pressure from Warner Brothers to put out albums. Like, please just come back. We need you in the band. And so Pete begrudgingly came back in time for the tour. So they went on this tour. And after the tour, Joey Mullen quit. He was done. He wanted to pursue a solo career. He wanted to leave this whole mess of a situation. So he was officially done by December of 74. And the whole time hereafter, the whole situation between Warner Brothers, Stan Polly not saying anything about their account, where this money was, etc., etc. It was just ploy after ploy after ploy for money, increasing frictions between the band and it was just really, really a bad situation. Polly's next move was to press Badfinger for an attempt to go back into Apple recording studios to record their next album in favor of doing a U.S. tour. Again, just more reasons to make more money. I would think and assume albums were more lucrative for money than touring. It could be about the same. So they went into the studio and tracks were recorded for an eventual album of theirs that was titled Head First. It was going to be released by the year 2000. It wasn't released at that time. But they had, you know, songs recorded and rough mixes were distributed to the musicians and Warner Brothers in America. However, because Warner Brothers already filed a lawsuit against the band and Polly, the tapes and the album could not be formally accepted. So that's why it took so long for the album to get out eventually. And also they thought that the rough tapes sounded that they were thrown together in a hurry and that it was an obvious attempt to extract further advances from them. I mean, yeah, talk to Stan Polly about it. Not Badfinger. Badfinger was doing what they were contractually obligated to do. You can't really blame them for that. You know what I mean? So legal action, like I said before, led to stopping the promotion of their album, Wish You Were Here, after seven weeks. So it totally ended the distribution of that album and it halted Badfinger's career 100%. Because now they had to pay legal fees for this lawsuit that they didn't have the money for. It was getting really dire, this situation. So dire. It was, it was not looking good. So with their album suddenly withdrawn, right? And their follow-up album that they were in the studio putting time into, it was rejected. Badfinger spent some of the early months of 1975 trying to figure out how to proceed with this legal situation because believe it or not their checks didn't clear and some checks before in the springtime never came to them they had zero money i want to just reiterate they had zero money they had close to pretty much nothing 
it was it was horrible and panic set in predominantly for pete ham he had recently bought a house in surrey for his girlfriend and they were expecting a child can you imagine the financial stress that comes on a new family you're gonna have a kid you just bought a house but you can't you just don't have the money for this stuff like there's no there's absolutely nothing you can do the band tried to continue without Stan Polly by trying to bring in booking agents and managers throughout London saying, hey, please manage us. Please manage and book us stuff, please. But they just couldn't get the luck because people saw that they were in this legal dispute. No company on in their right mind would touch that. They'd be like, that's too much of a hassle. That's too much heat. We can't deal with that. So nobody, seriously wanted to take them on and help them. They were like, mm, no, you, you have an impending court case, so we're not doing that. We're not getting in the mix here. Sorry, we can't help you. Pete Ham on many occasions tried to contact Stan Polly on the telephone during the early months of 75 to try to talk to him and just say, listen, can you please help us? Like, what are you doing? You are destroying us. But Polly was... MIA, he was like ghosting everybody. He was silent. He was not saying anything. So, with the whole burden of this court case, with them not getting their checks or any money coming in, he has a child on the way. He has a house that he just bought for him and his girlfriend and his child that's on the way. Pete Ham is on the verge. And this is where I'm going to be talking about the trigger warning I mentioned earlier, okay? spoiler alert, I guess, if you didn't know. Um, But this is where it's coming in. And this is the unfortunate, very disturbing, sad reality that sets in for some people in this kind of situation. It's just some people, they just don't have the hope to see things through and to hang on for better days and to seek positivity. So, on the night of April the 23rd, 1975, Pete received a phone call from the U.S. I would assume that it was his bankers telling him that all of his money in his account had disappeared. He had zero money. Where did that go to, I guess? Hmm. Stan Polly? Yeah. So, he had zero money. And that was it for him. That was it. He officially, I think, was mentally checked out officially by that point. So later that night, he met up with Tom Evans and they went to the White Hart Pub in Surrey together where Pete drank 10 whiskeys. So he was drunk. He was done. He was numbing and masking the pain that he was feeling. He was in such despair and such pain he in anguish. He couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, Tom drove him home at about three in the morning on April the 24th and very tragically, Pete hanged himself in his garage studio later that morning and his poor, poor pregnant girlfriend found him that morning and he left her a note. And this is like, there's no words to even describe like what I felt when I read this note. I I just, it's really sad that these were his last words. And the note reads, Anne, I love you. Blair, I love you. I will not be allowed to love and trust everybody. This is better. He signed Pete. He also put on the bottom, P.S. Stan Polly is a soulless bastard. I will take him with me. 
uh, my heart just like, it sinks when I read that, like, he really took him with him, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I'm going down, he's going down. Oh, my God. I believe in karma, you know, I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that Stan Polly got his karma. I do. Unfortunately, Pete had to, I guess, be the catalyst for this to finally stop, the agony for the rest of the band to stop. And Pete actually died at the age of 27, so he is actually part of the 27 Club along with um, others, you know, like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, etc. So he's, he's part of the 27 Club. If you're fascinated with that whole thing, he's part of that. You know, of course, Pete had shown growing signs of mental illness over the past months prior to his suicide. Some members of the band remembered that Pete was burning cigarettes on his hands and his arms, which is a form of self-harm. It was, it was, it was bad, to say the least, you know. He was cremated at the Morriston Crematorium in Swansea, and his ashes were spread in the memorial gardens. Of course, how is this going to go, right? In, in May, in the spring, Warner Brothers terminated its contract with Badfinger, and Badfinger had officially dissolved. And around this time, Apple also got rid of all of Badfinger's albums from its catalog. They were totally wiped clean from every possible slate. Badfinger was no more. However, that isn't to say that they didn't try over the years to reinvent Badfinger because they did in a couple of instances after Pete Ham's death. So now you're looking at 1977. Badfinger is done. Joey Molland and Tom Evans were out of the music business at this point in time. Joey Molland actually later described his bad financial situation as such. Thank God I had guitars and I was able to sell some of that stuff. We were flat broke and that's happened to me three times where my wife and I have had to sell off everything and go and stay with her parents or do whatever. I installed carpeting for a while in Los Angeles and stuff like that. You do what you've got to do to survive. So they were taking odd jobs. Can you imagine? They were on the Beatles record label. They had hit songs. They seemingly had a decent amount of money, but they got zero of that money. But still, of all accounts, they were on the highest of highs. Now they're doing carpeting work, insulation jobs. They were driving taxis around. Like, you know, literally they were out of the music industry. They were normal everyday people, you know. Bill Collins, their former manager, was having trouble paying the lease on the group's two-room rental studio at number 6 Denmark Street in London. This is an interesting little uh, side story, by the way. I just thought it was really cool. After he advertised for new occupants to fill the space to get some money, he was contacted by a man named Malcolm McLaren. And if that name sounds familiar to you, he was the manager of the Sex Pistols. And he gave Collins 650 pounds, which is about the equivalent of 5,600 pounds in 2021 standards. Not only did he give him that, but he gave him a Fender Rhodes piano as a down payment. Isn't that just so interesting how that just all comes together? I just thought that was really cool. So by late... 1977, a U.S.-based drummer named Kenny Hark was formed up with a guitarist named Joe Tanzen, 
and they were brought in by Joey Mullen to start a new band, and this was the new iteration of Badfinger. Tom Evans also joined a year later as well, I should say that. So they were encouraged from the record company Elektra to continue under Badfinger. So their comeback album as Badfinger was called Airwaves, and it was released a year later in 79. But pretty much immediately upon their recording sessions for this album, the drummer Kenny was fired. So also Joey Tanzen left the group as well after the album was completed. So it didn't really last that long, unfortunately. So this album was coming out. So looking to promote this album in any way that they could, they recruited an ex-Yes member called Tony Kane, and he was on keyboards. And so they got him and they got a man named Peter Clark for the drums. The single for the album is called Love is Gonna Come at Last, and it reached number 69 <laughs> uh, on the Billboard chart. So like it was okay. It wasn't anything major. They soon added Glenn Sherba as a second guitarist to the lineup, and they added Richard Bryans, who brought on to replace Peter Clark on drums. So now it's another incarnation of Badfinger. And they released their follow-up album called Say No More in 81 with the single Hold On, and it reached number 56. So it did a little bit better, but not that great. Just like, eh. So, of course, they were still in this lawsuit with Warner Brothers, and it lasted for four years. Polly finally was forced to pay a substantial sum back to the company, Badfinger and Warner Brothers, in late 1978. However, uh, Polly managed to retain approximately $50,000, which was approximately three albums worth of payments. Just, like, Unbelievable. This man is the fucking devil. I'm telling you, he is. They, they signed a deal with this devil. I'm telling you. And finally, like, goddamn, after so long, in 1987, there was a formal investigation opened on Polly and they were looking into his fraudulent bank dealings. Like, thank you. Hello. Thank you for this. Thank you. <laughs> so after the failures of these new albums from the revamped Badfinger, Joey Molland and Tom Evans created separate rival touring bands as a way to get at each other. They each named their band Badfinger to spite one another. That's the only reason that they did this. Um, this happened between 82 and 83. And of course, this created more tension between the band and the members. It's just like so stupid. Like, just make up and say sorry and move on with your day. But that's not how it ended up, of course. However, I think this was to be, of course, the final nail in the coffin for Badfinger because also, again, warning, warning for what I mentioned previously, if you're sensitive to these subjects, please, please pause or whatever, fast forward. Here it goes again, you know, just so sadly and very unfortunately. On the night of the 18th of November in 1983, Tom Evans and Joey Molland had a very heated argument on the phone regarding past Badfinger income that was still tied into Apple and some songwriting royalties. You know, it was, you know, it was about the past. It was about money, discrepancies, just never ending. And it was said that Tom Evans never really got over Pete Ham's death. That obviously it shocked all of them. But I think for him, because he was the last person to see him alive and he drove him home, 
that that really impacted him the most. And so extremely, unfortunately, he also hanged himself in the garden of his home in Surrey on the morning of the 19th of November. Just so, so traumatic, so unbelievably sad that this band just went through so much. Um, He was cremated at the Woking Crematorium in Surrey on the 25th of November in 83. At this point in time, 2022, Joey Molland is the sole survivor of Badfinger. Mike Gibbons died in 2005 due to health complications. That's it. He's, He's the last one of Badfinger. He keeps the memory alive as best he can via any shows that he has done over the years. And he's done actually some solo records. I've never had the chance to listen to these records of his. He actually released an album either last year or in 2020. I can't recall what year it was. It was either last year or 2020. That was his most recent album. The sounds of his songs are reminiscent of Badfinger. And so it seems like a great album, honestly. I think I might um, give that one a listen because Badfinger is really great. I think they're an extremely underrated band and more people need to listen to them. I think this is a great way to end the podcast episode through all this despair. Something that comes around to bringing Badfinger in the forefront of people's minds was we all know about the show Breaking Bad, right? The finale for the TV show had about 10 million viewers that tuned in. The finale featured Badfinger's song Baby Blue in it. And because of that whole thing, people were obviously starting to look into who is Badfinger? What's this song? And so that being on the finale of Breaking Bad boosted the sales of the song, which then became the ninth most selling song on Amazon and streams on Spotify for the band increased by a whopping 9,000%. So I think that's a really great uplifting note to end it on. After all this disparaging tragedy, horrible deals gone wrong, they were kind of doomed from the start, if you think about it. I mean... You know, they were just working class, everyday, regular guys from a port town in Wales. They just loved music. They just enjoyed being together, being friends. You know, they got picked up by the Beatles. The Beatles cradled them and molded them into what they are. They were helped immensely by the Beatles. I mean, seriously, the Beatles took them under their wing and really helped propel them into their stardom initially. And, and unfortunately, they just came in at a bad time because Apple was starting to crumble and the Beatles were starting to break up. Unfortunately, that's just kind of what it was. But you know what? They're just really great. You know what I mean? Like, sure, not every album of theirs is a hit. I would say their best two albums are No Dice and Straight Up, 100%. Like, listen to those two, uh, without a doubt. You can't deny that they have unbelievable talent Unfortunately, it was just squandered and crushed and they had the shadow of Stan Polly over them who wanted nothing more to do with them than to get every drop of money from them. And again, I really question why they did that in the first place. Like, why did they feel like they needed to work with him and felt like maybe they couldn't get somebody else? I, I don't know. But that's unfortunately the way that the, um, the cards were played out for them. But again, I think that was a nice kind of uplifting way to end the episode that finally, after all this time, Badfinger, I think, finally gets the recognition it deserves. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was kind of a downer in a lot of ways. You know, I don't like to interject negativity, but this is the reality 
that some bands face. And it's a very compelling story. And I felt very compelled to tell this. Again, I was not even going to tell Badfinger's story until I looked into this casually and I was like, I need to share their story. So I hope you guys learned something that you never learned about or knew about before. I hope you guys have a great day. And seriously, please listen to Badfinger. Listen to one of those two albums, No Dice or Straight Up. Listen to Come and Get It. Listen to Day After Day, No Matter What, Baby Blue, etc., etc. Please take the time to listen to them. You will not be disappointed. I hope you guys have a great day and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.